we consider briefly uh, one verse from Matthew chapter 26. About the ninth hour, Jesus called out, cried out in a loud voice, Holy, holy, mama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as we begin, there's one major theme that you see kind of play itself out through the ministry. Aside from the events of Christmas and his childhood that we hear in Luke 2, the major theme that we hear and we see throughout the ministry of Jesus is, is kind of shaped like a funnel. At the very beginning, as his disciples start gathering around him, and then he selects out 12 and designates them his apostles, the crowds start following him. And even though he had chosen those 12 men to be his, his closest traveling companions, men with whom he would walk and teach over the next three years, the crowds still started gathering. The beginning of the Gospel of Mark, we hear how Jesus was healing at, at Peter's house. Simon Peter's mother-in-law was sick. And that evening after sundown, which meant that the Sabbath had finished, the crowds kept coming to him. And then the crowds swelled. And the crowd swelled all the way until that first high point, the feeding of the 5,000, followed shortly after by the feeding of the 4,000. These crowds who had heard about Jesus, whose notoriety in a good way had begun to spread, could this be him? This one who drives out demons, this one who raised the dead, this one who cured a man who was born blind, could he be the one? And even up to that second that second peak of his popularity, when the crowd seems to have swelled even more, the crowd that would now have been filling Jerusalem for that Palm Sunday. Did you hear what he did? He called Lazarus out from the dead. Lazarus was like dead and buried, and, um, and the funeral was over. Jesus completely missed it, and Jesus called him out. And it's almost at that point that the funnel um, noticeably starts to shrink. It had started to shrink, obviously, if you read John chapter 6, it had, it had started to, sh to shrink when Jesus said, I am the bread of life, and that he wasn't going to pander to the will of the crowd. When Jesus wasn't going to simply provide bread for them, and he came to be someone and something greater than what they were hoping for. And the funnel began to shrink. And then shortly after that, we get into Palm Sunday, and the crowds start to dissipate. They welcome him on Palm Sunday. And over the course of the week, the Pharisees oppose him, the Sadducees try to catch him in a trap, the, even the Herodians, that party that supports the local king, even the Herodians try to trap him. And then his own disciples, Lord, what is it going to be like when you come again? Surely, surely this building will be here. Such a tremendous building, such a tremendous place. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, not one stone will be left upon another. And even his closest disciples start to shake their head and, and wonder, what is he saying? Am I, am I sure, am I certain that this Jesus is exactly who I want it to be? Because it seems that things had taken a turn. And as Holy Week progresses, 
afternoon of Thursday. As some disciples are preparing the upper room, another disciple is plotting to betray him, and the rest are squabbling about who gets to sit on the right and on the left, and who is the greatest. And we see the, the splintering as they start to split apart, fall away. And the theme of that funnel leading up to Jesus alone. Monday, Thursday comes, and Judas leaves. The eleven go with Jesus to the Garden of Gethsemane. He leaves eight at the entryway, takes three with him. The funnel narrows. Those three can't even stay awake. And it's just him. It's just him, and angel strengthens him during his prayer. And then it's just him. When the mob comes to arrest him, and one strikes with a sword, and Jesus says, not now, not like this. And then they all flee. Even that young man who kind of followed after, who might be the gospel writer Mark, they, they grabbed for him, and he ran away, leaving his garment behind. That theme of, of a funnel, that Jesus alone is the one who has to be alone. When he stands trial before the Pharisees, before the Sanhedrin, before the high priest, and then the other high priest in this kangaroo court that's trying to convict him, there he stands alone. When he stands before Pontius Pilate, there he stands alone. That even though John and Peter were there um, in the middle of the night at the house of Annas or Caiaphas, even though they were there, Jesus was alone. When he stands there before Pontius Pilate with the full weight and authority of the Roman government rallied against him, he says nothing. And he's alone. When he is sent over to Herod and then he's returned and he's, he's thrown to the, uh, to the guards, there he is alone. As he goes out to the hill called Golgotha, Pilate washes his hands, releases Barabbas, and condemns Jesus to death and says, you know what, it's on you guys, I'm done with this. And Jesus is alone. Sure, Simon of Cyrene helps him carry the cross. He helps him so that he is able to make it all the way out to that hill. But he is ever so alone. And look at the words. As we go through the service, you'll notice that he goes from words and sentences that are this long all the way to the second to last statement that is only one word long. That as Jesus suffers alone for sin, he makes it very clear what he is doing. And when he cries out in that Aramaic sentence that Matthew records for us, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is utterly alone. Perhaps you've felt what it, likes, what it feels like to, to be alone. Maybe you remember your childhood when you wake up in the middle of the night and the house is completely quiet and dark and there isn't even moonlight coming in through the window and that feeling of just being alone. Everybody else is asleep, it's just you alone with your thoughts whatever dream and nightmare is lingering. Maybe you've experienced that 
that sense, that feeling in the pit of the stomach of being alone, even when you're in a crowd of people. When you have experienced some sort of loss or grief or pain, that others are there to sympathize with you and empathize with you, they've come to comfort you, but none of them are experiencing it the same way as you. And how much more alone could you get than to be utterly alone in a group of people? Other than alone there on the cross with everybody accusing you of something that you had never done. On the side of Jesus is this other man who in, in his life, at this point, he is alone. We don't know exactly where he came from. We don't know his story. In all likelihood, since it's outside of Jerusalem, he's probably Jewish, which means he was probably circumcised as a baby and taught the truths of the Torah as a child. We know that this man seated or on the cross next to Jesus, um, he starts out the day keeping on the accusations. And then when he sees the events and he hears the happenings, and he sees the echo of Psalm 22. God brings about a miracle. And that truth, that first of all, the life and ministry of Jesus is shaped kind of like a funnel, where he starts out with this crowd until it distills down to him alone suffering for sin. And you and I, experiencing what it means to to be alone to some degree. Of the man next to him on the cross, utterly alone, but not alone because of Jesus. Might it be true that when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He opens the door just a little bit for us to understand what it means to be alone and apart from God. He opens the door to the reality of a life apart from God, of a life of terror and guilt, of a life of Adam and Eve scrambling to cover themselves and scrabbling to hide in the bushes, of a life that is alone. Because that's what sin does. And that sin makes us alone. And that sin promises um, success, that sin promises um, escape. That sin promises some sort of um, benefit. But it only ever always leaves us alone. And even, even in cases where we have not done anything that precipitated being alone, we also deal with the fallout of sin of loved ones who have been taken from us through death. And death is a result of sin. And thanks be to God, but thanks be to God, that on, on this Good Friday, when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cries out to you and to me, Dear child, you won't ever be alone. He cries out to you and to me that he is forsaken, that he understands the depth of what it means to be alone. Not just, not just your grief, not just your loss, not just your terror in the middle of the night, but he understands the full reality of being alone 
and shut out from God's loving presence. He understands the full reality of what it means to suffer for sin. And he cries out in this beautiful sentence, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you and I would have the certainty of knowing that he was utterly and completely alone. That the crowds that had begun at the, the beginning of his ministry, that had swelled in the feeding of the 5,000, that had carried through to the raising of Lazarus, that the crowds had deserted him because Jesus has to do this all by himself. And that Jesus is there at the cross because he alone is the one who carries sin. And there's nothing for you or me to add. There's nothing left for you or me to carry because Jesus does it alone. And so when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's during that time that he is experiencing the spiritual reality of hell, of being um, shut out from God's loving presence, of being completely under God's wrath, of being completely alone. Even though his, um, his mother and some friends and the gospel writer John are there, he alone is the one who carries the weight of sin. Thanks be to God for that. Because during the day, there's that other conversation that we heard about. Don't you fear God because you are under the same sentence? Don't you fear God because you are also pinned to a cross and you are all alone and your family has left you here and your name was in the newspapers, but that's it? This man has done nothing wrong. The other words from the other cross. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And his response, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. Do you see the connection? By that point, Jesus is making a, a promise to this man that he will never be alone. Jesus is making a promise that the funnel has been completed, that the crowds have deserted him, and Jesus suffers alone for you and for me. And because he is the one alone on that cross, you and I will never be alone. Even if it's just you by yourself at your home when you go home, that his death and his resurrection mean that God in your holy baptism came to dwell within you individually and personally. That this Jesus who suffered alone did that so that he could purify you and make you his holy temple to dwell within you individually and personally so that in this world of sin and death and pain, even when you experience that day of your deepest grief, you won't be alone in that grief because your Lord has taken away your sin. Your Lord has come to you and made his promise to you that he was the one who was forsaken so that you would be set free. That he was the one who was forsaken so that God would be able to dwell within you and you would never be alone. Oh, to think how that day ended. Here's Jesus who starts out the day, um, you know, at around noon or so, cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And three hours later, he cries out in a loud voice, it is finished. And Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And then his promise to that other man who was alone on the cross right next to him. Today you will be with me in paradise. His promise was also fulfilled. That this word of promise from Jesus 
was enough to sustain and carry that man through death and was fulfilled. Could you imagine when that, when that thief, whatever his crime had been, walked into paradise that day? Why are you here? Not because of what I've done. Not because of the gold or silver that I've contributed. Not because I have done penance and atoned for what I did. The man in the middle said I could come. That Jesus suffered alone so that you and I would never be alone. That Jesus suffered alone so that your baptism would have power. That Jesus suffered alone so that you would have the promise of a forever with him, not only in this life, but in the life to come. And when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The promise for you and for me is flipped around. My child, my child, you will never be forsaken. Amen.